Let me just say that I um, appreciate uh, Dave, David and Stephanie uh, leading our music. Um, I know they're still recovering from the retreat, and uh, a lot of people have had bad colds and things, but uh, we thank the Lord for that, that they're recovering, and for the ministry of last weekend. Um, I also just want to repeat and clarify a couple things. Uh, I know there's a Monday night prayer gathering at the Harrigan House. Uh, there's a Friday night gathering um, for the Anderson House. Uh, there's a Friday at 11 a.m. here in the church, a gathering for those who perhaps uh, would rather not go out at night, and you're available during the day. Uh, and is there another one that we're talking about? What, what night is that? Tuesday afternoon, the, the Moore family are opening their home. And so um, no real fancy agenda other than just to gather with others and pray in small groups. We urge you to sign up or just show up. And uh, we're not offering food. It's not, it's, not, it's not a statement about their hospitality skills. It's just a matter of they're opening, you, they're opening their home and welcoming folks to pray uh, with each other. So I hope you'll take advantage of at least one of those uh, this coming week. Um, I also would just like to say uh, it's a real joy to, uh, some of you may not have met some of our kids, and so we've got our daughter Catherine here and little uh, Adeline, uh, her four or five month old, and her husband, just to clarify, uh, was traveling on business and he was unable to connect business with pleasure to come here and spend the, the, this weekend with us. He had to fly back home, so he's back in Illinois. Uh, their, their marriage is going wonderfully, so don't read into that at all. <laughs> And my marriage is going fairly well, I think, I believe. Uh, and <laughs> my wife is going to go back with Catherine to Illinois on Wednesday of this week and spend some time with, uh, with the grandchild and her daughter, whatever, our daughter. And then Eric and Leslie and little Colton are in the back. So uh, they're here uh, every so often. And so uh, we just, I want to just say, in terms of introducing them, just how thankful I am for our church and the way you as a church family minister to our children growing up. It's not easy being a PK, a preacher's kid, and I just want to thank this church for the love, for the grace, for the guidance, for the prayers, for the, the teachings that so many of people offered. Uh, we are deeply thankful, and I hope you'll pray with us and keep praying for the next generation uh, as we're already praying for our grandkids to love Christ, to serve Him, to follow Him, and to honor Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are willing to be in such a position with us as friends. What a friend we can have in you, Lord Jesus. All our burdens, casting them upon you. Lord, we have a lot of burdens. We have many concerns. We have many heartaches, many trials, many areas, Lord, we need to see change. And so we're looking to you, and how we thank you that you welcome us, you invite us, you urge us to come. And so, Lord, meet with us this week, we pray. May it be a very profound week in our lives, as a church, in our own individual lives. Lord, may we all sense a fresh blowing of the wind of your Spirit in us, that we might love and enjoy you with a sense of freshness and vitality. And now, Lord, we pray that your word would be applied to our hearts and that you would teach us through your word and give us, we pray, greater faith to trust you in your promises. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
It's not a fairy tale. It's not a made-up story. It's not fake news. But almost well over 100 years ago, in a place in Wales, there was an amazing movement of God that is just hard to imagine. It was an area where there was a lot of mining that went on. It was a a rather blue-collar community, I guess you'd say. And among these people, the whole community was transformed in a matter of a couple of months. It went from being a place where the crime rate used to be fairly high to where there was hardly any crimes being committed at all. So much so that the police force didn't have anything to do. So they started a singing group. And the magistrate in the courts would show up ready to, trial, to, to offer and um, carry out the various trials. There were no cases to try. It was amazing to see the gambling the practice of gambling among so many people evaporated. The, the places, the, the saloons, the, the places where people used to get drunk and, and uh, consume so much uh, alcohol to excess, they began to close down. There was nobody going in there. It was amazing that the problems that were so uh, deep-seated with families that were living in abject poverty because the fathers would get the paycheck and go down and they would spend all the money in a wasteful way and the poor children and the wife are left to fend for themselves. That all changed. In a matter of short amount of time, the fathers began to bring the entire paycheck home. They began to spend time with their families. It was amazing to see the families uh, reconnecting. It was during that time also in which some people began to express serious concern about losing their job. You say, well, why would they be concerned about losing their job? Well, they worked in the mines, and the mines almost shut down entirely because the mules that were carrying the loads of coal out of the mines were so accustomed to foul language, to curse words. That was the only thing they ever heard these miners ever say to them. And the miners began to clean up their language and the ponies would just sit there looking at them like, yeah, took them a while to learn the new commands without being cursed at. And in those dark tunnels underground in the mines, Instead of hearing all sorts of gossiping, all sorts of nasty jokes, filthy jokes, they now began to hear hymns and songs and prayers from these men as they were mining in the mines. Matter of fact, so many changes took place that they they told the story about the tool shed in these mines. It was a place where they kept all the pickaxes and the shovels and various things they used in um, in the mining process. And it's usually about half full, which is normal. But they said in the about two months period of time, they had to build three or four more sheds to, to house all of the tools that began to somehow reappear. The ones that had quote-unquote walked away over the years as people stole them and took them home. People began to pay the bills that they had been avoiding for the longest time. It was an amazingly profound time of change. Why? Because God by His Spirit moved in a wonderful, refreshing revival in 1907, I think it was 1904 and 1905. Now we started off our service this morning with a prayer from Psalm, Psalm 80, in which it says, Revive us and we will call on your name, O Lord God. Restore us, cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. 
When we ask God to revive us, and it is a biblical prayer, it is something that we should be praying on a regular basis. But we're encouraging us to pray those prayers more earnestly in this day and age. And what are we asking God to do to revive His people? Well, there's a definition in your notes there, in your bulletin, given by Robert Coleman. And he says this, he summarizes what a revival is. Revival is that strange and sovereign work of God in which he visits his own people, restoring, reanimating, and releasing them into the fullness of his blessings. Restoring, reanimating, releasing them. That's what God does during a time of revival. And this morning I want us to look at uh, another time of significant comments about revival found in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Uh, perhaps a book that you haven't opened in a while. If you're familiar with your Bible, uh, you can find your way there. If you're not, page 530 in your pew Bible. But I'm going to read 18 verses, the first 18 verses of 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and follow along with what God promises His people at the conclusion of this chapter. Now when Solomon, verse 1, had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The house there is the new temple that Solomon had just completed after many years of construction. And the priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And all the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. And they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly, He is good. Truly, His loving kindness is everlasting. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord, and the king Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. And thus the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. And the priests stood at their posts and the Levites with the instruments of music to the Lord, which King David had made for pray, giving praise to the Lord, for his loving kindness is everlasting." Whenever he gave praise by their means, while the priests and the others, other side blew trumpets, and all Israel was standing. Then Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord, and there he offered the burnt offerings and the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar which Solomon had made was not able to contain the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the fat. So Solomon observed the feast at that time for seven days, and all Israel with him a very great assembly who came from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. And on the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly for the dedication of the altar. They observed seven days and the feast days, feast seven days. And then on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people to their tents, rejoicing and happy of heart because of the goodness that the Lord had shown to David and to Solomon and to his people Israel. And thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's palace and successfully completed all that had been planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. 
And then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer, which is the one he prays that's recorded in the previous chapter, chapter 6, and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locust to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be here, there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And as for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, even to do according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne as, my, as, I, as I covenanted with your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man to be ruler in Israel. I want us to zero in this morning and I want us to focus specifically on verse 14. I know it's familiar to many of us, but I want to answer and look at two primary aspects of this important verse about revival. I first want to focus on God's promise to revive His people is rooted in His grace and His glory. It's rooted in His grace and His glory. Now, I've heard this verse quoted scores of times in my lifetime. And I've read it scores of times in my lifetime. But I must say to you that sadly, I have to admit that it's been very few times that I've ever read the verse or heard the verse quoted that it's been explained in its context and the background of the verse. Because the historical setting, as we said earlier, was the dedication of the temple by Solomon. And here, after culmination of years and years of planning, years and years of, of um, collecting and stockpiling resources, they all gather as a people and they're celebrating the wonder of this, the temple of the true and living God, now finished and complete. And if you look at the whole chapter 6, you have Solomon offering this extensive prayer of dedication. It goes on and on and on. And after that, we come now to this sentence it said at the beginning of chapter 7, which I found to be quite moving and profound. Even more profound than what happened in Wales in 1904 and 1905. Solomon finished prayer, and here comes fire down from heaven, consuming this burnt offering and sacrifice. It probably means lightning came down and just sort of, uh, completely destroyed it. And the glory of the Lord filled the house and all the priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. What must that have been like? Can you imagine witnessing such an event? God made it abundantly clear in that moment that He was not as the other deities of other localities and other people groups of the time some local deity made out of carved stone or carved wooden object that stood there. No, he's not like that. God is the holy, all-glorious, supreme, sovereign king of the universe. 
And he made that impression very clear on that occasion. And what did the people do? It's what you and I would do if we had any right mind at the moment. They all bowed themselves down before the Lord. Now I find this interesting because as I've thought about this occasion, the revealing of the glory of the Lord in that profound way is really nothing more, I think, than put in the context of the larger story of God's redemptive plan. It's really a, a foreshadowing of the revealing of God's glory in Jesus, who himself, he said, my body it will, be, it will be destroyed in three days, and I will raise it up again. He's talking about what? He himself was the temple of God, living among the people. Indeed, we read in John's Gospel that Jesus claimed that he is the Messiah, took on flesh, and he lived among us, and he displayed for all to see the glory of God. The problem is, many people didn't bow down to Jesus very often. A few times they did. But obviously, His glory was made accessible for us to see. But in this situation, God wanted to make sure that, they, that the glory was not just in the gold and the silver and all the impressive things that the craftsmen had included in this building. The point of it was to point to the greatness of the God whom they are to worship. And the God who made everything and everyone... It's the God who's designed us and wired us and created us so that we might delight in Him. That we might delight in the all-glorious God and that we, after delighting in Him, may reflect His glory in this earth, to all the people of this earth. And that's why I think, as you continue reading in the passage, it's clear, and you read the prayer that Solomon prayed, God's people, you and I, and the people of that day and all the time in between, that we know what it's like to fall into the struggle at times to steal from God's glory, to have our hearts grow cold toward God, to not hold God, God in high esteem, to begin to sort of make much of us and our glory, to treasure God's creation rather than the God who made everything in creation. And this was clearly Solomon's concern Six times in Solomon's prayer in the previous chapter 6, he gets concerned about the time in which the Lord's people, he knows full well, are not going to keep this kind of reverence for God as, as was evidenced on that day of great celebration. He knew that there were going to be times in which the zeal of their devotion was going to wax cold. He knew that there were times in which their hearts were going to become more enamored with other idols. So Solomon, in concern for that, knowing how prone the people of God are to times of spiritual compromise, to times of spiritual complacency, to times of spiritual uh, struggle, he knows that the consequences of those kind of heart division and divided heart, instead of being loyal to God and trying to somehow be loyal to other things, that leads to all kinds of serious consequences. And the society then begins to begin show signs of that lack of reverence and proper alignment with God. And so Solomon prays about that, and God responds to Solomon's concern with this promise in verse 14 of chapter 7 in 2 Chronicles. God is providing assurance that His grace is greater than the sin of His people. 
And the promise of revival is a gift of God's grace. A promise that's given to remind his people, listen, yes, I can promise that I will do a work of great turning and changing your hearts and doing a healing in your hearts and in your land. In you, a people who are wayward, a people who have compromised, a people who have perhaps become complacent as my children. And the work of revival is not something that God is obligated to do, not at all. It's a response of His sovereign grace. And I've left in your notes a very interesting quote I came across this week that talks about an analogy, trying to compare what happens in the dynamics of revival, what's going on there. And he uses sort of a scientific uh, comparison with mag- magnets and uh, in a magnetic field. He says, in a genuine revival, masses of God's people experience the glory of God in extraordinary ways. Christians are captured by the magnetic field of God's greatness. And their whole lives are oriented toward Him. Like the molecules in a magnetized bar of iron, they point unerringly toward the great magnetic north of God's glory. With every breath, with every thought, with every minute of their lives. I wonder, does your heart have a similar concern like Solomon? Knowing full well that how prone we are to times in which our spiritual zeal sort of lags knowing that the soil of our heart's passion for God's glory oftentimes dries up, knowing that there are times when we, those pervasive weeds of worldliness begin to grow in the heart, hearts, and when the church of Jesus Christ is being squeezed into the mold of this world's system, do we not know that when we see a decline in our church and other churches that at one time were thriving, that at one time were dynamic in gospel ministry, do we not all sense, Lord, we need help? Will you be there to help us when those times happen? And should we not, like Solomon, be pleading with God that in his sovereign grace he might revive our hearts again? that God might heal our hearts, that He might stir us up, turn our hearts toward Himself with a new sense of love and passion for Him. As I meditate on this thought, I just the, the picture came to my mind again from the New Testament, how Jesus shows this sovereign grace again in the New Testament. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 3, you have Jesus specifically spending time and speaking to different churches of that first century. And in the church of Laodicea, he comes to the people gathered there in that particular place who claim to be followers of Jesus, and he points out that their outward acts of devotion, very honestly speaking, he really sort of spoke to them directly. He said, listen, your your outward acts of devotion are neither hot nor are they cold. He says they're lukewarm. What does he mean? Well, he's saying there weren't anybody within this gathered assembly of people there in Laodicea claimed to be followers of Jesus, they weren't outwardly rejecting Christ. And on the other hand, they weren't really exhibiting much zeal for Christ. It was somewhere in the middle. 
And what does Jesus say to them? Knowing that they were in need of revival, he says, listen, I stand at the door and I'm knocking. If any of you in this particular locality in this church, if any of you will open the door, I will come into you and I will sup, I will eat with you and you eating with me. You see, Jesus, I believe, is saying to the church, I am knocking at your lukewarm heart. I'm more than glad to come, forgive, restore, and to commune and fellowship with you once again. I feel so burdened and feel like Jesus is just knocking at the door of our church as well. I believe he is saying, listen, I have a gracious offer. I want to draw you into close communion and fellowship with me. And that there is hope for you. There's hope for me. There's hope for our church. God is full of grace. God is full of glory. And even though He is the all-glorious God, He still nonetheless is graciously willing to come down to where we are and draw us to Himself. His heart is willing to revive my heart and your heart. Is that what you're praying for today? Secondly, I want us to look at this amazing promise that God gives in this 14th verse of chapter 7. He promises to revive His people in a way in which He indicates, listen, there's a contingent promise here. It's contingent upon three heart responses. I don't have time and I'm not going to unpack all three of these equally together because some of these we've already begun to talk about in our previous sermon series as we've been talking about seeking God. But here in verse 14, God sets forth three vital heart attitudes that are to precede a reviving work of God. And notice that there is an obvious order to this. You can't sit there and just move these around in any particular order you want. I think there's a sense in which God spells them out specifically the way He did. And He starts, first of all, with what has to come first, and that is a humble heart. A humble heart. Why is that? Why does it make sense to start with a humble heart? If we want to see revival in our own hearts, within our church, well, I mean, obviously God detests pride. And a a proud heart is a self-glorifying heart. A proud heart is about really focusing primarily on ourselves. And a proud heart refuses to come to God on His terms. And just to quote a couple of interesting contrasts, from our workbook, uh, from Lesson 2, Day 5, this helpful chart that was found in the, in the, in the book. From a proud person is this way, a humble person is this way. Proud people don't think they have anything to repent of. Humble people realize they have need of continual heart attitude of repentance. Proud people have a hard time saying, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? Humble people are quick to admit failure. They're quick to seek forgiveness when necessary. Proud people compare themselves with other people and they feel worthy of honor. Whereas humble people do what? They compare themselves with God's holiness and they feel desperate for God's mercy. Proud people focus on the failures of other people. Whereas humble people are overwhelmed with a sense of their own spiritual need. 
When you consider God and ponder how great and awesome and holy and powerful He is and loving, you realize how far short we fall of, our, of His glory because of our sin. And therefore, it's essential that we adopt the kind of lowly position in our attitude as we seek to come to Him. And so we've been talking about that, and I've, I think that's been fairly helpful in your workbook and in our, our sermons for a couple weeks ago. But I would say this, humbling ourselves involves laying aside, first of all, all of our excuses. We can't talk about the media. We can't talk about Hollywood. We can't talk about you know, our parents being all the blame of everything we ever do in our life. We have to sort of stop with all the excuses. And we, we sort of also lay aside idols in our hearts, lay aside any kind of demands we're putting upon God, and lay aside all self-defensiveness, where we try to defend ourselves to say, wait a minute. No, we sort of let that go. That's a painful process, but wow, that's so important as a first step. The second thing he indicates is so crucial in preparing for revival is to have, I call it, an intimate, childlike, dependent heart. A childlike, intimate, dependent heart. If we have hearts that are humble, that is, we're readily willing to admit that we are spiritually weak and we are therefore urged to come continually before Him as weakened little children asking our spiritual Father for help. And so he says in verse 14, to pray and seek His face. I think that phrase, seek the face of God, is such an interesting thing. Now, obviously, he's not talking about a literal vision from God. He's not talking about being able to see a literal face because that's, uh, they call it anthropomorphic language about God. It's describing God in a way that we can sort of understand what he's saying in human terms. But it just means to be seeking God in a deeply personal, face-to-face kind of honest encounter because we really want to know him and we want him to know us. And so those who enjoy fellowship with God, those who are loved and known by God, we are a people then who, after a while, we begin to share concern for what God's concerned about. It's not just us rattling off everything that we want to say to Him. It's being willing to listen to Him speak to us in the Word, and we're beginning to realize what He really wants to see happen. And rather than spending our time begging for God with this long grocery list of things that we're asking God to give us, creature comforts, uh, or asking God to give us self-focused uh, provisions that are primarily about us and having our, our, thing, our life work well for us. We become concerned that we want to say, Lord, no, what I want is I want to see your kingdom come. I want to see your will be done in my life, in, in my world, in, this, in the area where I live and, and work and have a difference in this world. Rather than petitioning God to remove all of our problems and asking for just smooth sailing in life, people who seek the face of God are saying, Lord, not our will, but yours be done. Seeking God's face involves delighting ourselves in Him, making our joys His joys, finding satisfaction in what satisfies Him. And there's no hesitation to confess sin. You see, there's no reticence to be honest with God. We talked about that last week. 
There's no reticence to, to say, listen, Lord, I'm going to say the same thing as you say about what's going on in my heart. I'm just going to be honest and open and unreal with you. It's that kind of close interaction with each other who are relating on a deeper level. I've been trying to think of what would be an illustration of that kind of face-to-face encounter. And, and I think back to pleasant memories of a little piece of paper that I've saved. I have it in my dresser, one of these little wooden boxes that has a little lock on it. A memory box, I guess you'd say. And on the envelope, I've written a birthday present from one of my kids at the age of five years of age. And on that gift, it, on June the 7th, that's my birthday, uh, 1995, $5. And the more I thought about that, and you say, well, what's the deal? $5. I mean, it gave you $5. That was all this one particular child of mine had. That was all in the piggy bank. It was emptied and given to me with what? Great delight. Great delight, with great joy, saying, I desire to take everything and everything I have, I'm going to give it to you, Dad, because I love you, and because I want you to have what you like. Is it any wonder that I saved that little thing? <laughs> it was a very meaningful gift to be the recipient of that. I wonder if your heart beats in rhythm with God's heart. Are you imploring God to say, God, will you just split open the heavens? Would you just come down among us? Would you begin to work in me and in my life and in the lives of people that I know and love and in our church and in my family and in my neighborhood and my school in this world in which we live? Write down Isaiah 64, 1-3 and meditate on that sometime where the writer of Isaiah asked God, does it, he says, Would you come and rend the heavens and come down to make your name known that the nations may tremble at at your presence? What a great prayer. I believe it's time for us to get serious about interceding, seeking God's face, asking for revival, asking for our church to thrive in gospel ministry, asking for our life to make a gospel impact in other people's lives, asking God to Help us disciple people and make a difference in helping them become strong people who serve Christ wherever they go. That's part of what it means to be earnestly preparing God to move in great revival. Thirdly, I would just say this. A third condition that God requires revival is a repentant heart. Turn from our wicked ways. Makes sense, doesn't it? How would God bring about revival and really bring dramatic change for His glory and our good if we hang on to wicked deeds, wicked actions, wicked attitudes? You see, humble hearts turn toward God. They readily admit their sin. That's a good start right there. And then humble hearts come out of the shadows. We come into the truth. We acknowledge what's really going on in us with God and with other people. And then humble hearts will seek God's face it leads to a process by which we will mourn over our sin. It's not something we're thrilled about. We acknowledge it's a problem. It's something that's obviously offensive to God. He still loves us, but it's still not something. It's, there's this awkwardness as long as it's still in our life. And so we, a repentant heart doesn't just feel sorry for the consequences of our sin. A true repentant heart has a deep regret over the sin. 
a mourning over my sin. And because of the gospel, it's not just that mourning, but I'm able to admit the sin. I'm able to admit freely that I am flawed, that you're flawed. And the greater my awareness is of God's grace, the greater awareness I have of I am accepted before God because of Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross for me. Therefore, I am all the more greater freed up in my heart to likely be able to say what? I'm going to drop all my denials. I'm going to drop all my self-defenses. I'm going to admit the areas of my life that I really need to deal with and acknowledge to God. And over time, as we grow in our awareness and enjoyment of the love that God has for us, we develop, obviously, a desire to clear our hearts of anything and all those things that offend God. Why? Because it's those things for which Christ died on that cross. We don't want to have those things hanging around. Gordon MacDonald, the pastor up in New England for so many years, tells the story in one of his books about resilience uh, that he and his wife, when they moved up to retirement home in New England, uh, they wanted to develop a garden. And so his wife just was passionate about it, said, listen, I would love to see this happen. And so she got him out there working, both out there working. And if you know anything about New England, first thing you're going to do if you're going to create a garden is what? You have to move some stones out of that soil and uh, clear out all that stuff. Uh, that's why you see all those stone walls up there uh, still in place. And so they began their garden. They applied so much energy and time to removing these large, massive stones that the both of them had to sort of drag and move off to the side. And then as they kept digging in the soil, they went back over it again, and they removed stones that are about the size of a softball. And then they had to go back through a third time in which they took a rake and they began to go through that same dirt area and they got the small pebbles out and trying to clear out all those rocks. And so he and his wife thought that that rock removal process was complete and they enjoyed a garden that started to grow and thrive and something they began to enjoy. And it wasn't long till they realized every spring, because of the deep freeze that goes deep down into the soil so many feet down into there and then when it starts thawing in the spring this weird phenomenon stones begin to be pushed up out of the ground and so he'd find himself trimming around near the garden or she's in the digging and they hit these stones and you're like where'd that come from i thought we cleared all these out and he talked about the fact that the longer we live as christians we invariably find that the things that we have done in the past that perhaps we've not dealt with. Things that offended God. Things that have offended other people. And these things begin to sort of, all of a sudden, just show up and say, you know, this thing needs to be dealt with. And repentance involves admitting them, taking responsibility for them, and rather than quote-unquote being sorry for them, or somehow blaming other people, blaming our circumstances, we have to own the wrongdoing that we did. And because of God's working in us, humility, we then what? We take deliberate steps to what? Remove the stone from our hearts. We must take whatever necessary actions we must take to deal with the wrong 
that's there. With the hidden sin, perhaps it's been hidden as a sin. It's been kept as a secret for a long time. It's almost become the normal of our lives. But there reaches a point where you say, no, I just cannot keep this as normal anymore. This is not right. God knows it. I know it. I need to deal with it. Or maybe it's something that is a known sin, but it's been festering for some time. My friends, if we desire to glorify God, then we, we must face what's been done. We must acknowledge the pain it may have caused other people. It becomes, therefore, in the Christian life, just like it did in New England, every spring all these stones have been pushed up. Just like us, in the Christian life, it's a regular pattern of life. There's a need to repent throughout the Christian life. It begins with repentance, clearing out all the stones. It continues on throughout our life. As an issue surfaces, with confidence in Christ's finished work on the cross, in His atonement, and in His gracious promises in the Gospel, then we do what? God promises us to, as He says here, I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Because of the promises knowing that we will find forgiveness, we therefore can what? We open our lives to the process of removing all the stones of offense all the rocks of rebellion that are in the soil of our lives. And therefore, we are called to care less and less about what other people think of us. And we're called to be much more concerned, much more passionate, much more committed to saying, Lord, I am more concerned about what you want me to do. I want to please you because I am so amazed by you and your love for me. How sovereignly you have shown me grace upon grace. And in so doing, we therefore are saying, Lord, as I take these steps, I desire to see you move and work. And I don't want to be an impediment to that. I don't want to be what's going to prevent you from coming and bringing the change that we all long to see in my life, in my family's life, in my community's life, in my church life. I'm praying that this week, as you work through your workbook, if you have a workbook, as you work through day five and get to the point where you start saying, Lord, what is it I need to repent of? Show me. I'm praying the Lord will do it. He will give you the courage. He will give you humility. He will help you to seek Him. And you will truly repent of every wicked way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You are the most amazing, gracious, and forgiving, and holy gardener. You are the one who is committed to bringing forth from our hearts a great crop, an abundance of flowers of Your grace and glory in us. And Lord, I thank You that You call us into this divine process of removing the stones from the soil of our hearts, the stones of rebellion, the stones of wickedness, the rocks and massive boulders from our past that we thought were all buried and nobody knew about them, but Lord, they've been there. We've never dealt with them and we've refused to deal with them. But Lord, we don't want that to be the normal anymore. I'm praying that you, by your Spirit, Lord, would put in the 
hearts of each person here today a willingness to humble themselves, to come to you, Lord, on your terms, to look to you to bring to light the things that need to be brought to light, to bring healing where there needs to be healing, to bring change where there needs to be change. And Lord, you might prepare us in these endeavors which are painful and not easy and easily resisted. But Lord, by your Spirit, draw us into these things that we might see you revive our hearts, that we might seek you as your people. Lord, we pray also if there's someone here today who's never come to you, who's never fully bent their knee before you, who've never fully surrendered to Christ, who've never said, Lord Jesus, I need a Savior. I want you to save me from my sins. And I need you to give me a new heart and a new life. I pray, Lord, today, this will be the day they come to Christ and find Him to be their true joy, their true life, their true um, and greatest pleasure. So, Lord, work among us, we pray. May you, Holy Spirit, move in, in us and among us in your own sovereign, powerful, and holy way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.